Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about science and medicine where we talk about issues in biotechnology and how new innovations can help people and the planet. I'm Kevin Fulda, and today's topic will cover the Ben & Jerry's debacle from this last week. Uh, those of you who've watched the news and watched the websites, it's hard to not notice that there is a pint of ice cream likely in your refrigerator or in your freezer <laughs> right. Yeah, that that um that many want to you to believe harbors some sort of health hazard. And the story came out that glyphosate was detected in uh, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. So what we're here to talk about today is uh, a number of different issues based upon the ethics of reporting something scientific that wasn't vetted in the scientific literature. Is it something that we should really think about? What happens when we release that kind of information in the absence of scientific vetting, and, and does it distort the public's perception of the science? And to discuss this with me today is Dr. David Oppenheimer from the University of Florida. Hi, David. Hello. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, David is uh, a professor here at University of Florida. Um, he's also a guy I run with every weekend, so you know we, we were talking about this last night um, as we were... Uh, out running in the sweltering Florida heat, and uh, it was disgusting, and so we talked about science. Figured this would be a good thing to discuss together here on the, the topic. You know, so David, you've uh, taken a look at a lot of the um, discussion around this, and when we're talking about issues where the public is really interested in the outcomes, and in today's chemophobic climate, where people are afraid of their food because of activists literally poisoning the well, why is publishing information on a place like um, New York Times, unvetted information, non-peer-reviewed, why is that hazardous? Well, it definitely skews the way that the information is presented. So they are clearly hostile to the technology and hostile to glyphosate in general and GMOs all over. And it's very clear that they are going to massage how they present that data so that 
it looks scary and uh, something that the public should fear. Very clearly, that's not the best way to do it. You should present the science in, in a very balanced way. You should point out the strengths and the weaknesses of the various studies, and you should point out what this actually means to the average person, not just uh, spout doom and gloom about every single thing that you find. Well, shouldn't a, a newspaper reporter, for someone like New York Times, isn't it better for them, or isn't it more appropriate for them to be reporting on, you know, we read these scientific reports in peer-reviewed journals, and here's our synthesis. Is it really their best place to be the primary storyteller? I mean, I guess that's what it really boils down to. Should they be sharing information which hasn't even gone through peer review? Absolutely not. I mean, it seems to go without saying that a reporter should be assessing, with help from the scientific community, uh, the primary research literature and not just taking unpublished research and putting it out there. In, In the past, journalists did that. Now it seems that journalists are very much focused on, as they have always been, readership and number of clicks through to their website. But it's gone so far beyond the idea that they are taking a a balanced approach to something that has already been vetted and is known to have some substantial uh, uh, impact. Even in this New York Times article, the reporter states that, oh, well, the amounts that they found in ice cream, you would have to eat 45,000 pints a day to have any biological effect. Well, right there they should say, geez, this report seems to be nonsense. Why do I? Why is there even a story here? But yet they, they have scary headlines and scary uh, uh, discussion of what this means and how glyphosate's a carcinogen and the smallest amount is absolutely fatal. And it's just so overblown. But yet there it is in the article that it's essentially nonsense anyway. Well, I think that's the point. I think that's what, it's the old merchants of doubt strategy that in an attempt to seem like they're balanced, the reporter says, well, you would have to eat 45,000 pints of the ice cream in order to have an effect. But then the reporter says, but according to Ronnie Cummings of the Organic Consumers Association, there's a lot of questions about the poisoning uh, nature of glyphosate, and it's yeah. been called a probably carcinogen. You know, So they, they state very clearly what the facts are, and that you know, scientists do say that this is a very, this is not a risk, this is not a hazard, um, and your exposure is basically none. But then they always have to roll out. But you just don't know, right? Yes. And in the zero tolerance world of chemophobia these days, um, where any chemical detected is tantamount to going to kill you, right? Right. That's right. And that's and that's absolutely the the wrong way to go about it. I mean, this idea of releasing primary information that's of interest to the public with an unvetted uh, source is just the wrong way to go about it. You can certainly sway public opinion that way, but it's just not correct. You, you eventually completely erode uh, the public's trust in the source, which in this case would be the New York Times. The New York Times is playing on their, their well-earned uh, reputation as being a credible source, certainly in the past. Recently, we've seen some questionable publications coming out from them. But You're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> but in the past, they, they were a credible source. And sure, they can keep doing this for a while, but after a while, they're, they're not going to be viewed 
much higher than as a credible source than any other um, uh, yellow journalism out there. And I think that's been an increasing trend. I mean, we've seen more and more lately about um, from authors like Danny Hakeem and then the stuff from Eric Lipton about me, um, you know, that where they, they do get the science wrong and they deliberately misrepresent the information they have. And it, it seems as though, and, and, and what's really interesting about this is that University of Florida will release some emails and then people will start getting questions from different reporters about me um, days afterwards. And some of them have been from the New York Times. Um, articles haven't come out about those emails. But I think this is exactly the same thing. This is um, Organic Consumers Association, who is not has nothing to do with organic farming um, directly. They don't teach you about uh, cover crops and uh, you know composting and ways to uh, farm without uh, synthetic inputs. They're an activist organization, and their whole thing is to stop biotechnology. And now they're co-opting what look like legitimate news sources in that crusade. Let's go back a step. If you look at uh, the levels that are found, part per billion. Yes. So what, what is, uh, you know, how does that translate to a legitimate threat to anybody if it was true? Well, first we have to uh, take that big if, if it's true. Since there was no methods or data actually presented, it could be that the experiments were flawed in uh, some fundamental way. And I know after working with lots of very sensitive pieces of equipment in my own laboratory, uh, there is noise in equipment that is highly sensitive, and you have to control for that. You have to have appropriate controls to show that you are able to detect small levels of what it is you're trying to detect and or large levels of whatever it is you're trying to detect, as well as not detect that product or chemical in samples that do not contain it. And this is not necessarily trivial, especially with chemical uh, uh, pieces of equipment that can detect chemicals at vanishingly small amounts down to you know one or two atoms you know you have to you have to be careful because there is there is quantum noise in the chips that are doing the sensing so okay so let's say if they are correct and if those experiments were actually done correctly and if they are truly detecting these vanishingly small amounts parts per billion then what that means is you're still talking about a, a amount of glyphosate that is truly negligible. These are things that it just doesn't matter. It's so far below the biological uh, sense or, or biological relevant dose that your body is not going to uh, interact with it whatsoever. I mean, it's just essentially not there. And I mean, it's it's really funny that even with the best-grown, carefully uh, processed organic potatoes, when you fry them, you get acrylamide, which is a known neurotoxin that's very definitely easily measurable in French fries. And yet, I don't see the Organic Consumers Association jumping up and down and printing New York Times articles saying no one should eat French fries anymore. But that really shows you the disingenuous nature of this entire discussion is that this is about a chemical that's used in the production of genetically engineered crops or in the in the uh, production of genetically engineered products. So to make corn or soy, you use glyphosate. 
So in order to target the companies that make the seeds, which is what this is really about, yeah. is you have to somehow vilify glyphosate, which, as you mentioned, you know, part per billion. We know the kinetics, the pharmacology of this thing. When you ingest it, 95% moves through you in stools. Um, the rest of it's excreted as urine or detoxified in the liver. And all of that is very well known. So the amounts of actual exposure at the cellular level are, are, are plausibly impossible to be causing biological effect. That's right. And also the key target of glyphosate in plants, which makes it such a wonderful herbicide, is an enzyme that animals do not even have. No, they don't even have a relative of that enzyme. So it, it, it's a, such a benign chemical. It is one of the best herbicides in terms of low toxicity to animals that, yeah. that one could use. Yeah, and, and what this is really about is it boils down to trying to harm the sales of seeds from a company and take out the farmers that use them. And, uh, and then we go back a little bit to when you were talking about detection. Um, you have to be able to do these experiments correctly, which means, which really are broken down in two places. And we'll talk to Shelley McGuire in just a few minutes. Dr. Shelley McGuire is an expert in analyzing the contents of breast milk. Uh, she's an expert in lactation and studies these different processes. But just as kind of a prelude to that, you have to not only know where the limit of detection is, but also this limit of quantitation. How deeply can you actively tell one part per trillion from 10 parts per trillion, from 100 parts per trillion to 1,000 parts per trillion, a part per billion? You know, how, how can you discriminate those individual amounts in the background of a complex substrate or complex matrix like milk? And um, with things like water, with things like urine, it's doable. And they've made kits to be able to do that. And there's one kit you can purchase commercially where you can, uh, it's a competitive ELISA, where you can take water and very accurately uh, determine how much glyphosate is present. But that's in water. And if you start using things like cracker crumbs, blood, uh, umbilical cords, um, uh, breast milk, all these other places they claim to find it, you're now adding variables in there that inhibit the reaction that's taking place to, that give you a false positive. Yes, anyone who's ever done an ELISA knows that there are a lot of factors that can change how the how much output you get from those assays. Mm-hmm. Uh, ELISAs are based on antibodies binding to a particular target, which is usually pretty specific. But the kinetics of antibody binding to its target is very, very, very much affected by things like pH, other proteins present, uh, other salt concentrations, uh, the, the nature of the salt, whether it's a sodium salt or potassium salt, etc. So, yeah. and that's just the first part. That's just the part of the antibody binding to its target. Uh, where the output from that assay comes from is an enzyme that's linked to that antibody, <laughs> which produces a color when you put in the appropriate substrate. Well, again, enzyme reactions are very finely tuned to specific conditions. And if you have altered salt concentrations when you throw in your Ritz crackers or you, or you have altered uh, 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 protein concentrations when you're throwing in milk, Hot fudge. Or hot fudge. <laughs> exactly. Uh, some Marshmallow chunks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that can dramatically affect uh, the output of that assay. 
by affecting that enzyme reaction. Yeah, and it doesn't have to disturb it much to give you a positive signal of 0.5 parts per billion. That's right. <laughs> a, That's exactly right. And, and so this is really where we're at from the technical side is, you know, we go back to looking at what this paper claims, or what this paper, what the, what the newspaper claims. Yes. And it just is a hazardous way to report science because it, it's it's... They're not providing materials and methods. They're not showing how they're, they're the variation between samples. And really, it's not even clear which method they used. And, I, and for what it's worth, I did write to them uh, because on the Organic Consumers Association website, they provide a email for more information. And I asked them, you know, was the sample derivatized? Uh, what, um, what method of analysis did you use? What were the limits of detection and quantitation? You know, I asked all those right questions and did not receive a reply. So. Yeah. Yes. So I'm, we'll follow up with uh, Shelly McGuire now, and then we'll come back on the other side where Dave and I will talk about why Ben & Jerry's was targeted, which yeah. is a really interesting question. We'll be right back after this interview with Shelly McGuire. And now we're fortunate to welcome back an old friend to the podcast, Dr. Shelly McGuire, who's a professor of nutrition and lactation biology at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. Uh, Welcome back, Shelley. Thanks for having me, Kevin. No, it's always great to talk to you because you are an expert in understanding milk. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit more about, about what you do and what you search for in your research? Absolutely. So we've been studying milk since the late 1980s. I particularly study human milk, and I work with my husband, Mark McGuire, who's Associate Dean for uh, Research in the College of Ag at the University of Idaho, and he studies cow's milk. And so we've been uh, studying the composition of various types of milk and milk products for 30 years. And when you look at these claims that were made in the New York Times, you know, about glyphosate being identified in cow's milk, first of all, how do you feel about a primary research report showing up in a newspaper? Well, first of all, as you know, that's a red flag. Um, any, anybody who understands how science works understands that it has to go, good science needs to go through peer review. Um, it should never just go straight to the public, uh, like in the uh, New York Times. It's just, it's just not the way it's done. And in terms of a technical assessment, so you look, they, they report a bunch of numbers, they report um, that this was done by a laboratory in Fairfield, Iowa, which is another red flag there. What is it that you would need to see as an expert in milk analysis that would give you confidence in the numbers? Well, one thing that we all know, all of us that work in milk and anybody who reads the literature about milk composition Know, should know that milk is one of the most difficult uh, biological substances to analyze accurately because it's full of fats and proteins and cells and bacteria, a good bacteria, etc. And to really analyze it carefully and accurately, you have to be super careful about the methods that you use. You have to validate whatever you're looking for in milk in the matrix Uh, We call that the matrix, and you have to do it in a way that you know it's repeatable and you know it's accurate. And so whenever I see anything come out about uh, some sort of component in any sort of milk or dairy product, my first question is, how is it analyzed? And in this particular case, we can't tell. uh, We can't tell if the assay was validated, was published, etc. So for a scientist 
when I look at something like that, I immediately say, well, we have no idea if those data are accurate. Therefore, we really should discount them until they've gone through peer review. And that's just, it's like science 101, as far as I'm concerned. When we're, anal- when we're analyzing complicated matrices, what are some of the things that we should be looking for? Like in your papers, there's a methods paper that describes how to extract it, and then another method about the actual detection that's there. What do you look for? So when we are uh, validating a method for looking at anything in, in milk or any other biological sample, there's a couple things we really need to pay attention to. First of all, can we be specific about measuring the molecule of interest? In this case, it's glyphosate. Now, glyphosate is a tiny, so it's a small molecule that actually looks like one of the building blocks for protein. So it's really, really important that we know that we're actually measuring what we think we're measuring. That's kind of step number one. And that is way trickier than it might sound. Step number two is, is can we really say that the number we're getting is accurate? So if we get, let's say, a value of one, do we actually know that that's different from a value of three? So that's the whole next level. And as far as I can tell, whatever method they used for this analysis hasn't been validated for either one of those steps. And does each substrate or each matrix have to be validated independently? So like if you have, and just from my understanding, tell me if I'm wrong, if you're looking at vanilla ice cream versus, um, uh, what's another one they do, uh, cookie dough or uh, you know half-baked or fish flakes or whatever it's called, you're you're looking at introducing chocolate and marshmallows and all these other compounds that upon homogenization and, and, and analysis could contain inhibitors of any downstream detection. So do you have to validate the linearity of detection in each one of these different matrices? You know, believe it or not, you do. Because, for example, you just brought up a simple thing like chocolate. Now, some of these uh, some of these flavors of ice cream that they analyzed, if I remember correctly, had fruits and nuts and chocolate and a whole bunch of things. And you have to know that each one of those is made up of chemicals. And each one of those chemicals could actually interfere with the analysis. So absolutely. So just, you know, for example, chocolate milk is different from plain milk. And what they analyzed were really complex. So, yeah, you actually have to analyze the the matrix differently. Um, You know, in the simplest of terms, we can think about it's very different to analyze milk versus water. Okay? They're talking about analyzing ice cream and different types of ice cream. So the, uh, the work that they would have had to put in to actually validate those assays was phenomenal. And I, again, I see no evidence that they did that. Yeah, the, uh, the only place they didn't detect it was in the flavor Cherry Garcia, which I thought was rather ironic because the namesake for the flavor we associate with weed, and this is the one that has no weed killer. So it, it fits logically, I guess. But the, um, oh, it, but it, it could have been very much a case where something in cherries interfered with the detection of the molecule that they were trying to detect and so you know it could be that maybe it really was there and you're not seeing it because you weren't doing the um, detection correctly in that particular matrix oh who knows i mean in this particular situation anybody that understands science completely discounts the entire article so 
you know, splitting hairs between, you know, maybe Cherry Garcia had it, maybe it didn't. It's just, you know, that, again, back to Science 101. They've they've uh, sort of gone against all the rules. So I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, none of it holds any water in my book. So how do you feel about this as a scientist in terms of the ethics of either the New York Times or the writer Stephanie Strom or the Organic Consumers Association for commissioning this kind of work? Um, I think all three of them are in cahoots with each other and that this was a very deliberate, I hate to say hit job, but a hit job on Ben and Jerry um, for reasons that will be discussed later in the podcast. But how do you feel as a scientist who works in this area about using shoddy data from incomplete studies published as a primary place in a newspaper as a political tool to influence people's buying decisions? You know, as a scientist and just as a human being, I am, uh, to sum it up in one word, disappointed. I, you know, any, any decent science reporter would know that that uh, she has just violated all the rules that she should be following. So super disappointed in the reporter, super disappointed in the publication. Um, you know, they might want to rethink who they hire to, to write science articles. And just super disappointed in, in any group of individuals who's trying to use science, shoddy science, makeup science, to hurt a person, a company, whatever. I don't subscribe to any of that. Just disappointed in the whole system. Okay, so Dr. Shelley McGuire, thank you very much for joining me today and sharing your expertise. Where could we find out more about your research? Well, I'm a faculty member at Washington State University, and so I have a website there. People can look me up. I'm also a, on the executive committee of the International Society for Research in Human Milk and Lactation, the world's expert group in terms of research on milk, especially human milk, and you can look at that website to find out more about what we do there. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thanks for all you do, Kevin. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast, and today we're talking about the Ben and Jerry's situation where uh, trace amounts of an herbicide under great contentious discussion has allegedly been detected at vanishingly small amounts in uh, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Why Ben and Jerry's? That is the question. So when you think about Ben and Jerry's, David, what's Ben and Jerry's all about? I mean, if you, what's your perception as a consumer? Well, I actually like Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I'm a big ice cream fan, and I'm one of those people who waits for it to be on sale two for one because I just can't put down the pint once I open it up. And face it, eating two pints is always better than eating one pint. <laughs> No, and I, but yeah. but I, uh, I I especially liked when I first started eating their ice cream that it it, it seemed very pure and it and ethically sourced and it seemed to be very sustainably produced and hit all the right um, uh, consumer buzzwords for something that is you know pure and honest and wholesome and then plus they had a lot of really interesting catchy names that made me chuckle in the freezer aisle there yeah so that's good but that but that's the point is that guys like you and me you know we're in the business of being professors we uh do this because we feel a certain social responsibility right i mean yes of you know, course and 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 those kinds of uh, appeals to social um uh issues are attractive to us and and but 
But how did you feel about Ben and Jerry's taking so many anti-scientific positions, like with the labeling issues on genetic engineering in Vermont, and then the uh, their general stance towards biotechnology? Well, I was very disappointed in that, and that's uh, something that's that's very much bothered me. I felt that they were jumping on this bandwagon of anti-biotech to try and use it purely for marketing, since it's not really it's not science-based. It's all it's all perception and marketing-based. And so they're trying, I mean, they are a premium ice cream, and they're trying to uh, obviously court the part of the ice cream market that wants to pay extra for uh, premium ice cream and, and, and perhaps pay a little bit more for this social responsibility. But I was very disappointed that they weren't following uh, the science and were just uh, essentially repeating the same old mistruths in order to make more money. Yeah, see, now I don't know that I've ever eaten Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I don't oh, think I ever have. you're missing something. No, I don't think I ever <laughs> have. Well, because, you know, I, I pictured, for one, I'm, I'm, I don't like ice cream. Oh, oh, heretic. <laughs> no, <it's, laughs> it doesn't work with my chemistry, if you know what I'm saying. Um, yes. But uh, the, the issue around the Ben and Jerry's thing has been uh, that I didn't know that they actually were purchased in the year 2000 for $329 million um, sold to Unilever, which is a you know mega corporation that's uh, on par with Pepsi in terms of their market value. Um, it's, wow. Yeah, it's not, um, it's not two bearded weirdos in a shed in Vermont, you know, churning <laughs> milk into ice cream. Um, this is a big company that makes it. And those guys made out like a bandit. And part of their um, issue of selling out was... Uh, was we have to mean that Unilever has to maintain the ethics of the corporation and that they have to maintain this issue of social responsibility and um, that's what we want to be part of the brand. So that's all good and, you know, and I'm all for that. And when I read that, I really started to think that maybe I should be eating Ben and Jerry's ice cream. But what happens when you make those claims and then you start sourcing your milk from a non-organic dairy, like they do. So this has been really the big problem, is that Ben & Jerry's has been sourcing their milk products from dairies that do not subscribe to what many in the state of Vermont and other places feel is um, selling out to industrial milk, right? Big dairy. Right. Yeah, big dairy. Big dairy. And so the problem is is that, if you're, that the larger dairies are feeding their cows uh, commodity-sourced grain, which is, you know, corn and soy and stuff like that, that's coming from big producers in the Midwest. You know, the cheapest stuff you can get, that'll do the job, along with, um, you know, a, a correct balance of nutrients that come into cattle feed. Um, what the activists want is for Ben and Jerry's to be sourcing from uh, organic-fed cows or milk from organic-fed cows, which can be substantially more expensive because of the high price of the grain. So in it, essence, yeah, it seems yeah. It, it it seems that they're they're taking this organic uh, thing quite quite a distance away from the source. You're talking about ice cream, and now you're saying, well, the 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 milk has to be organic. Although that's that's very odd. This idea that you could you could be using non-organic feed to a cow that then is making this milk that you are then processing into ice cream and and you're call, you want to call this ice cream solely organic 
uh, you know, I could understand that if you didn't want foreign genes in your cow when you're eating a steak, but in milk, that's just it just doesn't make any sense. So I'm really surprised by that that it, they would need to go that far. Well, it's it's it, it, in the idea that Ben and Jerry sources non-GMO ingredients, so they're getting sugar that is from sugar cane rather than sugar beets. That they're using, and if they use any uh, corn syrup, that are be coming from you know non-GE corn or whatever, yeah. and so they're going that extra mile to satisfy that market segment, which is fine by me. I don't care, yeah. but um, it costs more. Well, now they want to get this into the milk, right? And some of the issues that the activist groups have cited, and this is a group called Regeneration Vermont for the most part, is they say that you're detecting atrazine. In the uh, in Lake Champlain, which beautiful lake right there in the shores of Vermont, but atrazine is what you use on non-GE corn. Yes. yes. <laughs> so <laughs> what you're seeing are the residues uh, environmentally of staying away from genetic engineering. Right. And if they would do a, if they would adopt genetic engineering, you would have potentially glyphosate detected, but uh, you know in the in the uh, environment, although its uh, impacts are pretty low at the amounts that it occurs. And, and the breakdown of glyphosate in the environment is also fairly rapid, from what I understand. Yeah, it, can, it depends on conditions and soil and, you know, a lot of different factors. But relative to other uh, more persistent uh, past uh, herbicides, it does have a fairly reasonable profile. And so this is what, where, where it starts to get into a funny place, is that do we actually create more problems by steering away from genetic engineering? And, and, and that's part of this. But what I really wanted to hit in the second part of this discussion was, you know, this appears to me to be a, almost a mafia-style hit job on Ben & Jerry. Here's a company that failed to comply with what the activists want and therefore will create and manufacture a story that uh, could significantly harm their market segment. And, you know, David, you know, David you, you've been targeted by OCA, I mean, I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I, I don't know that. So I, so who do you think pays for USRTK to do their thing? Oh, yes, yes. So, when, I, when I had a, a Freedom of Information Act uh, request for all of my emails that had anything to do with Monsanto or or uh, the Genetic Literacy Project and... Bayer and Bayer Dow and, and BASF. Yes. And so you got that email from US Right to Know. And uh, how, much, how many pieces of paper did you have to relinquish? Well, since I don't regularly correspond with Monsanto and Dow and Bayer, uh, I had approximately six that I had to turn over. <laughs> the, uh, the reason that you were targeted was why? Because I answered a question on GMO answers. My name was there as one of the expert scientists who could answer questions concerning biotechnology. Because that's what you understand. Yes, yes. I've been trained in, in biotechnology since I was in graduate school. I've been doing it pretty much uh, my whole professional life. Yeah, so 30 years of experience, and you may be a good person to answer a question for someone in the public who has a concern. Yes. You know, I feel the same way. And for your efforts, you received this uh, FOIA request from USRTK, which really came from Organic Consumers Association, who finances what... Um, yeah. And I find it's interesting that the reason for that Freedom of Information Act request was just to, you know, look at my credibility to see if I was a shill for, you know, big ag. And yet... I don't have the same ability to request all the emails from U.S. Right to Know to see if they're a shill for Big Organic. I, it's, <laughs> I find it a little one-sided that they can, uh, you know, luckily it didn't take me a lot of time and didn't cost the lawyers looking at, at 
my emails to make sure I'm complying properly a lot of time, but certainly for someone like you with many, many emails that would fit their criteria, that it could take a significant amount of your time away from important things and significant amount of time and money from the university lawyers who are making sure that you're complying properly. And so it, it's, it is surprising that, uh, you know, big ag in terms of Monsanto, Dow, and Bayer is looked at a lot differently than big organic, which you know, the Organic Consumers Association and, and others are trying to um, fund these activist groups so that they can try and silence scientists who are uh, spreading uh, or, or trying to answer questions by uh, giving up their time and putting out as much information as they can. Yeah, just sharing your expertise gets you in hot right. water. Yes. And that's uh, I think that that does work to silence scientists. I've had so many people come up to me at ASPB and other meetings and say, I wish that I could participate in this conversation, but I don't want it to happen to me what happened to you. Yes, well, and, certainly after I got the first FOIA request, it, it certainly put a, uh, a damper on my enthusiasm for answering questions for GMO answers. It, it certainly did kind of shut me up a little bit not not completely but it it you do think twice every time you know do you really want the extra hassle it, it might not even you know you might like myself really care about answering these questions and trying to uh, increase knowledge wherever I can but on the other hand do I want all the extra hassles everybody has enough hassles in their life do they really need to pile on more yeah, and then that's you as an academic professor who's a you know tenured professor at a major university. You have lots of good insulation from uh, from problems, and you still choose to. That's true. I mean, if I was a if I was a young assistant professor who was going up for tenure and trying to do this as part of my outreach activities, you would have to think twice because you don't know what higher administrator is now uh, raising an eyebrow. When these FOIA requests are coming across, thinking, well, is this person a liability to the university's position? Oh, you sure. Know? And so that, that could really affect uh, the younger generation of scientists, uh, certainly with respect to what outreach they decide to try and do. Yeah, so translate that to the corporate world. Now, imagine if you're a company, like um, an ice cream company, hypothetical ice cream company, that's going to source your dairy products knowing that because you source your products in a way that your company chooses to source them, in a way that is legal, safe, and completely supportive of American dairy industries, that now you are likely to have your company's reputation destroyed by activists who want to make up information or at least create uh, suspicion around trace amounts of some chemical that may be found inside you. This this is like uh, extortion. It is. It's very, very much like that. I mean, I can't think of how difficult that must be for them in their corporate offices these days. Because even if they could somehow get it across to the newspapers that that the studies were flawed or you know whatever, <laughs> the story is not. The second story never makes the same impact as the first story. So you know, here they are, front page. Oh, glyphosate found in ice cream. It's horrible. Well, the story that, that where the headline is glyphosate not found in ice cream, previous study was bogus, that never is on the front page. That's always buried on page 96 or in some uh, uh, correction yeah. section somewhere. So nobody ever sees it. And the, the public, you know, here you are putting this information out there, the public sees it, and the only thing that they take away from this is, oh, I can't eat Ben and Jerry's anymore. Yep. Doesn't matter 
what Ben and Jerry's does from now on, there's going to be that little bit of, of question every time somebody is opening the freezer door at their local supermarket. Well, this is what's so funny about this, though, is that OCA was incredibly devious in doing this the way they did because they knew that Ben and Jerry's can't respond. Because what is Ben and Jerry's going to do? They're going to say, "Well, no, those are those aren't real numbers." And these <laughs> that's are that's right. And they, these are people who are hostile to science and technology. That's right. And, they've been they've and, been bad mouthing biotechnology, <laughs> uh, and and saying, "Well, it's important for that that people know what's in their food." That's why we support this uh, GMO labeling. Well, yeah. now they're trying to look like you know if they respond, they look like they're not. That's right. Helping people figure out what's in their food. They're trying to hide what's in their food. Ah, foist it on your own petard, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Definitely. But that's what's so incredibly um, ingenious about taking them out in this way because it was a way to get back at big food, you know, uh, large multinational corporations, uh, maybe be able to punish farmers for not submitting to their demands. And so how do we as scientists fight back? on behalf of a company that we, you know, and that's been what's really interesting. I've seen so many people on Twitter and other places say, hey, Fulta, let them go. You know, <laughs> you know they, they made their bed. They can lie in it, you know, and, and, yeah. and in so many ways that they're right. You know, uh, Ben and Jerry's has been hostile towards science. They've promoted bad ideas. Um, let them go. The reason I can't let them go is it's not the right thing to do. No, it's and, definitely not. It's this idea of, of putting essentially false or flawed information in a, in a newspaper where it gets a lot of uh, visibility is just not the way to present science in, in any way. And it's not the correct way to uh, start bashing companies that you don't like for whatever reason. Yeah, so so really what the punchline needs to be is this isn't standing up for Ben & Jerry's. This is standing up for science. And so as people listening to this think about and synthesize this information, you know, take to the blogs, take to Twitter space, talk about how this is this is extortion and this is a trend that we're going to see more of. I think you're, they, they did it against Kraft Macaroni and Cheese last week. They did Ben and Jerry's this week. And this idea of we found a trace amount of blank in a product from a company we don't like, this is a new trend. And a disturbing one, and one that scientists need to be stepping into this conversation and serving as the independent brokers of scientific information to help the public feel a little bit better. And so writing blogs, sharing information on Twitter, um, sharing information on this podcast, you know, go ahead and, uh, you know, promote the idea that we need to be standing up for better science and getting rid of this problem of chemophobia. So, David, you know, the thing we didn't talk about is you're also the co-author of Undergrad in the Lab, right? It's, uh, well, the book is called Getting In, um, the, uh, the Insider's Guide to Finding the Perfect Undergraduate Research Position. But I'm also co-creator of UndergradInTheLab.com, which is a website that shares tips and tricks for undergraduates who are interested in finding a research position as well as those already in a research position who want to be successful. And, and the book is available on Amazon and other outlets, correct? Correct. And, it's, uh, and if they send it to you, you'll sign a copy? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but the main idea is, is that it's, a, it's an outstanding resource. And, and David and, uh, and Paris, uh, the other co-author, do a beautiful job. Paris Gray do a beautiful job in really promoting the ideas that they've uh, 
discovered through decades of mentoring undergraduate researchers. So it's about helping you find a laboratory as well as stay in the laboratory and contribute very uh, meaningfully to a scientific mission. And so that's good. And you're also on Twitter. Yes, I am. What's your Twitter? Uh, there's there's uh, several of them. One, uh, uh, mine is, I have a personal Twitter account. I'm not as active as I should be, but it's uh, Cell Bones. And Cell Bones? Yes, the cytoskeleton. Ah. <laughs> so at Cell Bones. Okay. Yes. And not, not S-E-L-L. Right. <laughs> that's a whole different That's, that's a, a whole, whole different, different side project. Yeah, <laughs> All right, so Cell yes. Bones, and then uh, also uh, there's at... Uh, at you in the lab. You, you, the letter U. No, uh, Y O U in the, in the lab. lab. And then yes. you got too many homophones. Yes, and <laughs> then also, uh, uh, also undergrad, um, at undergrad in the lab. But Indeed. I, so, so David, thank you very much for joining me today and talking about this really important topic because uh, we're seeing new ways in which science is touching society, not in productive ways, but in malicious ways. And I think those of us in the scientific community have an obligation to stand up as the brokers of facts and reason and how we tell science from garbage. And I know you're an expert at this, and I'm very happy you joined me today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week on Talking Biotech Podcast. Write a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you consume this media. Um, Send us more suggestions. We're getting a few as we skate towards episode 100. Uh, Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.